From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. I'm uh, Dr. Leah Broman. I'm Director of Product Management and Technical Services for DLF Pixseed and Seed Research of Oregon. I serve as a resource, both research, connection with industry, work with superintendents, work with customers, work with our sales staff. And that's globally, not just in the United States. I was trained in graduate school by an old seedsman at the University of Rhode Island, Dr. Dick Scogley. So my chat with Dr. Leah Broman on this episode reminds me of the importance of good seed technology and how that lays the foundation for overall success. The same idea of technology is important to your nutrient management program on the golf course. Research with plant food company programs has shown how proper nutrient management, use of plant defense activators, and biostimulants maximize the playing experience. The plant food company has been providing innovative solutions since 1946 when the company was founded by Ed Platts and is still a family business. Their support of research and education nationally for the golf turf industry makes a difference every day. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. In preparation, Leah, I, you know, I got the chance to look into your background a little bit. And, you know, you, like me, have been around a bit. And I was pleased to see you didn't venture far from home when you first went out to college in Bakersfield. Nope. I stayed at the local university, Cal State. It was actually a college then. Now it's Cal State University. Yeah. Got a bachelor's actually in biology. When I started there, I was really going to only be there for one year and transfer but I was able to complete an undergrad degree in three years by staying there. Financially, it made sense, and I had an excellent education. So off to Arizona, you went immediately. Now, was that to work with Boltonsberger? No, that was, Boltonsberger was in New Mexico State. Oh. It was Bob Kneebone. Oh, Bob was Kneebone. Arizona. Okay. Right, okay. Worked on genetics of Bermuda grass and cytogenetics, looked at their chromosomes. So once you finished there, it was into the breeding, commercial breeding world immediately or any dalliances with other parts of the industry? I actually had a year appointment at the University of Arizona where I worked on breeding of hydrocarbon producing crops. So it included things like um, euphorbias, chrysothamnus that produced other products that Potentially, we could even still use today if that project had ever been completed. Was that what we would call modern day biofuel research? It was less biofuel and more other kinds of things like substitutes for things that we use petroleum for, for plastics uh, and other things like that. Okay, so now you get into the commercial seed business, I'm assuming. You've, of course, been in the commercial seed business through some probably early stable years, let's say. But then I would say in my career, in my 30-year career, probably one of the most fully disrupted parts of this industry, the turfgrass seed industry. So how did you get started and how big is the boat you've been in to survive all these turbulent waters? Well, I, I first went to work for Jacklin Seed for a number of years, and then I left and went actually went back and taught after five years at my undergraduate institute for two years. And then I joined Seed Research of Oregon, partially from the recommendation of Dr. Reed Funk. So Seed Research was bought and sold 
multiple times. We were owned by Land and Lakes, Research Seeds. We were owned by Pixseed Canada. Then the whole Pixseed seed research was bought by DLF. People say, well, how do you do it? And I says, you do the best job you can. You work as hard as you can for in whatever assignment you have. And that's how you survive an industry. Right. That's exactly right. And I guess I wonder to a certain extent, Leah, how much has your job essentially changed other than maybe the material and the bureaucracies that each company may have or hold? Well, I don't do the day-to-day breeding anymore. Instead, I work with our breeders and provide that link between the breeders and the sales staff and our customers. So I'm not out day to day doing the selections like I used to do, but I try to make sure we have the best products and bring them into the market. Are these breeding operations that you're involved with both spread public and private, or is it mostly your researchers within DLF? We still access public things such as Rutgers University. One of our new bent grasses and flagstick came out of Michigan State. So we do work with public breeders, but we also do our own DLF research. And that's not just in the United States. We have research stations throughout the world. So we're able to look at a broad range of environments and make sure we we have products for all those. Over the years, you know, especially with Mike Kenna's leadership of the USGA Research Committee, there was a big emphasis on delivering new varieties, uh, heat tolerant, drought tolerant. How has the way we've approached breeding evolved in your time doing it at the industry level? You know, the USGA, and I would say all companies would look at trying to improve drought tolerance, trying to improve disease resistance. We consider that part of what we're aiming for, trying to bring value-added varieties to the customer and to decrease the impact on the environment that our varieties do have. You know, I don't want a, a variety out there that requires a lot of fungicides. I want to reduce the amount of water that is required of varieties. So you have to define your goals and move forward. And you shouldn't have a variety that just has one good attribute. You should have a variety that has a lot of improvements to it when you release it to the market. So when you take that logic, and we'll just take a deep dive right now uh, into the bent grasses since you set it up so well with that introduction there. You know, obviously, when I think about particularly the bent grasses, this being a golf audience, we can talk about ultra dwarfs and other things, and those may be quite a bit different. But when I think about the bent grasses, what I've seen is an enormous improvement in two big areas. One is particularly dollar spot resistance that we've seen come out of the Rutgers program, that intense breeding efforts that Stacey Bonos has been part of for, for many years. And certainly we've seen good varieties. The declaration comes to the top of the list for me, things that are off the top of my head. But the other thing, and I don't think anybody's going to argue with any of that stuff, particularly on the heels of, you know, Crenshaw from years and years ago and the problems we had with that susceptibility in the early days. But I'm more interested in hearing from you, Leah, about basically how bentgrass has become almost a warm season grass. It's like many will say, It really wants the heat. And like you, I've gotten to travel into the desert, into Arizona, and saw the new Renegade property that was done at Desert Mountain with Sean Emerson's group there when he he was doing it. 
And I'm wondering what your thoughts are when you approach these things, you give the people what they want, and then you get complaints from guys like me. It's like, come on, Lee, I can't get these things going in the spring. Well, one of the things in in partially uh, working with Sean Emerson is besides taking that heat tolerance and our vents, yeah, they do very well in Arizona. They do very well in Texas. But the other thing I learned from working with Sean, and we've included that in our new cultivars, is they, we also have to make sure they grow very well in the spring and in the fall. They have to have what I call cool season active growth. Mm-hmm. Because when we were losing the battle to Poa annua was when one shut down as soon as the temperatures got cold. And so we look for ones and we work with Brecker's, but we go through that spring green up and we go through fall growth to try and emphasize that on our cultivars because that is when we lose the battle against POA. It's not in the middle of the summer because the bins grow great then. It's in the shoulder seasons that we need that active growth. We've been trying to figure out how to actually measure that without actually doing something like clipping yield. And it was a comment that Chris Twitterbaugh at um, Hazeltine said that he notices in the spring that when he first sees dew on the creeping bed grasses is when they start to actively grow. So we've been trying to look at some of these other correlations that's easier to look at on a broad scale to see if we can even increase that cool temperature growth a little better. So you're you're satisfied that varieties guys are planting in these areas where shoulder season play challenges a grass that doesn't actively grow in the cool weather. You're you're satisfied we've got some varieties available for people who need it or or do you feel like we still need to goose it with pigments or iron or something to bring some heat to it to get it going? I think we've got ones that do a lot better. Do I think we're 100% where we need to be? It depends upon the cultivar because cultivars, you know, you you do a balancing act on pluses and minuses. That's why blends are sometimes good. But we know we've got ones that are doing very well in areas like the coast of British Columbia and are being competitive against Poa annua there, which tells me, you know, they are growing well in that cooler temperatures. But part of it is also to make sure you manage it for the bent grass and you don't manage it for the poa annua. So would a little iron help? I think sometimes iron does help. We've actually got some work we're doing with Oregon State trying to look at management options on some of these ones to help with that cool season growth and to be more competitive against POA. And so when you build these varieties, particularly bent grasses, right? For those of us that have been looking at them really since like me, since the late eighties, early nineties, when, you know, Deutsch started to release the A's and G's and then everybody, you know, followed suit. It seemed like from that, we call these things synthetic varieties. I hear words like segregation into parents and I see it. I know the words we use for it. I wonder if you could clarify a little bit how you go about building these bent grass varieties and maybe the distinction between the one that we call pure distinction, why you might not see segregation. Is it because it's, you know, one parent or have they just got parents that just blend well together? And am I using the right language? You know, I'm, I trained under Scogli, but I, I wouldn't call myself a breeder. Scogli wouldn't have called himself a breeder. He used to call, he used to tell me he was a collector. 
And I'm wondering what you would say just about how you build these things, uh, synthetic, segregating parents, stuff like that. Can you take me through it? Well, you try. And as we've gotten further along through our selection process, when we first started breeding these, Providence, which was the, one of the first ones Seed Research had, came from Dick Scogley. And, you know, his emphasis on that was he found five clones which were all highly dollar spot resistant. And it was very good for the time when it was. But part of the thing with Providence was we, it even though it was good, it didn't have that shoulder growth because I took care of those five clones. They weren't all exactly the same with the growth form. Well, we've gotten better at, we found out, for instance, what growth form lends it to be, say that scalping or bloating. Mm -hmm. So we've learned to select against that. And we've learned to make all the ones we include look very similar together. So we have some new ones like 777 and 007XL that I have walked every one of those breeder blocks and make sure there is no segregation occurring in them. So we've had some of those out for five years and seen zero segregation in them. Where the older ones where we allowed more variation in those parents on certain growth forms because we were maybe finding the ones that were just really best on dollar spot resistance. So as we're able to stack these genes or these improvements on top of each other, I think people will find much less segregation occurring in the newest generation stuff just because we've been able to stack the genes and we've learned the growth form we want to prevent that segregation occurring. Now, not everybody gets access to you and can do what Dan Danelli does over 20 years looking at things. A lot of people have to, you know, rely on NTEP data. And I would say probably more people rely on just chatting with people, maybe going to look at it, talking to the people about how they manage it and the pluses and minuses of it. Is there any better advice you can give people, superintendents looking at regrassing, whether it's forced or, or something they're thinking about in the, you know, forced because ice damage, right? We, we, we you know, yeah. every place uh, throughout the country where there's been POA, uh, I mean, I was just up in Lake Tahoe a couple of weeks ago, Leah, and and the ice damage was devastating up there, killed uh, Kentucky bluegrass at two inch height of cut. So what would you tell people about the best way to go about finding the varieties that will work best for them? Well, the things that I would do to find the varieties that work best for them is NTAP or local trials are probably, you know, where you want to start. It, they do not cover, I think, everything that's important necessarily to superintendents. We don't get the ratings for thatch development that we need. Um, some of the firmness stuff we're looking for. Certain characteristics I don't think we necessarily see in intact. I tell someone if you're thinking about looking at regrassing in a few years, ask for samples. We send out lots of one-pound samples of multiple cultivars. And tell guys, test drive it for yourself because every manager is different than everybody else. And, and your golf course is different. Go look at other golf courses in your area or ones that have similar environments and see how they're performing, what they look like. Talk to the superintendent about what his program has to be. You know, some guys are afraid. They're afraid to back off on fungicides on their greens. But maybe if they've test drove it a little bit in a nursery, maybe they will learn they can really back off on those fungicides 
for um, certain diseases. But, you know, we've made a lot of improvements. We've made improvements in, you know, dollar spot, anthracnose, brown patch. There's a whole list of them. But do we cover every disease? No, there's not one that has, I think, every single disease covered, though, you know, we're a lot better than we used to be. But that's what I would suggest to guys. How long is a reasonable amount of time for you to get a good assessment of a variety, right? You know, let's say you got a sample and put it in the ground, you know, particularly for the superintendents that might be, you know, having this, you know, in their mind moving forward, but it might not be for years off. And they might be thinking, well, you know, I don't need to worry about this now. But I'm wondering if, Leah, the longer you look at it and manage it, the better you can make your decision. That's true. The longer you look at it, the better off you are in making that decision. You know, I like to look at a bit grass for about five years, to be honest, before I think I know all of its strengths and weaknesses. And we work with Rutgers quite a bit on cultivars. So we'll look at those experimental numbers and we may like a set of them maybe in year one, but usually we won't put them into a breeder block till we're at least at year three where we really think we've seen the best ones kind of select themselves out of those trials. The flagstick variety that we worked on with Michigan State, we received the material from Joe Vargas, and we spent eight years refining which one of the original parental clones would actually go into that variety, making sure they had the dollar spot resistance and it was consistent over time, plus they had all the other characteristics we needed in a new cultivar. Okay, so so you go to all the trouble here of a lot of detail, a lot of time, and I think superintendents, if they're listening, I'm sure will understand that completely. But then you mentioned a point earlier that I think is is worth noting, and it's one I know Dan did with his greens at North Shore, and, and that is taking these varieties that you've built, where you, you know, painstakingly try to find some consistency, uniformity, and the fitness and traits that you want, and then they'll take that and put it with two or three others. Is that best, or is it just good to find one because you've done such a great job and just use one? Lots of people like blends and mixtures. And when we first did our first dominant blend, it was actually SR1020 and Providence. It was um, Ron Freem who actually was sitting in a meeting with us and we were talking about pluses and minuses and how these two cultivars, um, one did a little better at this time, one at the other time. And Ron says, why don't we blend them together? So that's when we did our first blend. We have tried very hard to get our cultivars to look very similar to each other so when you put them together, you don't see segregation. Now, maybe you'll see a little more than one by itself, but it does give you more genetic elasticity in that stand for that green that's tucked into some sort of shade area. Maybe one's a little better than the other on that area, but in that other area of your course, maybe a different one's better. But Dan looked at a lot of things. He looked at things like verticutting response, how well they took it and how quickly they recovered from it. He looked at a lot of details and I would encourage everybody to look at them for themselves. I wonder if this is just a theoretical conversation that goes on among breeders uh, in this area. When you put, let's just say 007 with, uh, let's say flagstick, just for giggles, 
Do they perform the same when they're together as they do when they're apart? Like when you said, well, if one's good at this time and one's good at that time, if we put them together, we'll get the best of both. Is that necessarily true? Because it would seem almost to be too easy if it was true. We've put trials out both at Rutgers. We've had some with Cale Bigelow at Purdue and also some of the people we've worked with have constructed various blends and mixtures. And it's interesting because sometimes the blend performs better than either cultivar by itself. In other cases, the blend kind of comes out in the middle between the two cultivars for certain characteristics. But those tend to be on isolated plots, which is a little different than you're putting it out on a whole green or a a fairway situation. People have very strong opinions sometimes about whether they like a blend or don't like a blend. I've seen, I think the blends perform better than either by itself. I've also seen, like I said, where they're kind of right in the middle of it. But if you get stress from one characteristic that maybe the one shines at, all of a sudden you see it performs better, the blend, than either cultivar alone. I have a few questions about the line for bentgrass adaptation, right? You and I have been around long enough to remember, you know, bentgrass maybe all the way to Jacksonville for a period of time before the ultra dwarfs really got to be what the ultra dwarfs are today. We were pushing the envelope to get these things further south. And now I've seen them out in the desert. And I can tell you the performance in the warm temperatures of the desert are far superior to what I saw uh, in the southeast. And I got to believe, Leah, this is somewhat related to how the bentgrasses respond to high humidity. And I can tell you, this is a year uh, where we've seen this a lot in the Northeast and a lot in in the humid Northeast and mid-Atlantic, where humidity is the bigger problem than warm temperatures, honestly. And I'm wondering, when you mentioned the word bloat, what kind of success you might be having in how these grasses respond to humidity. And is that something... Uh, that you guys are thinking about. Certainly you see it with scalping and Dan's verticutting thing, but I'm wondering if you're intentionally thinking about, you know, varieties that do well in humid climates without bloating. Yeah, we found, and we do think about that all the time, and we found that partially it's related to different growth forms, and the more spreading type growth form tends to have less of that bloat probability. We love to look at them in the middle of you know, out at Rutgers when it's a 95 degree day with 95% humidity, that's the best time to look at those bent grasses and to select the ones that actually can stand that humidity. And you're right about that differential. We have ones that have done extremely well in like Dallas, Texas. We have ones that have done well in Georgia and have had really reduced bloating and superior performance as we look at these different environments. So I think we've made improvements, not just for the arid South, but also for the more humid South or the transition zone, as far as the ability to tolerate high humidity. Part of it is also just improvements in disease resistance. When you look in the horizon, and you see a product like Poacure coming along, and imagine, just for a minute, for our conversation, that it delivers on the promise, which I've seen it do on different continents in keeping annual bluegrass uh, out of these stands. 
How do you guys in the seed industry view something like Poacure that could likely make, you know, some of the things like we're talking about, early spring growth, less critical if we have that option? All you got to do is sort of make it through. Uh, the Poa won't invade because you'll have the ability to keep it at bay. How do you think about something that might be a game changer like Poacure in what lies ahead for bentgrass playing surfaces? I still think you got to think about poa annua. If you're only using poa cure, will develop types that are resistant to it. Poa annua is a wily beast. I think you'll still need to do some rotation of chemistry, mm-hmm. yeah. but I think we will be able to have bent grasses in areas where we've been less successful. Mm-hmm. Overall, if you look at the numbers, you know, a green of bent grass an improved bent grass, that is, mm-hmm. compared to poannua, should require less fungicides and a lot of other characteristics that will enable us to possibly even expand where we sell bent grasses and utilize it. And so we've spent our conversation primarily, in my mind, talking about the quality and how to really get the right grass is in the cases of bent grass anyway. I think we've done a nice little dive there. But what I often hear said in sports, Leah, is that the best ability is availability. And so I'm wondering what kind of availability situations are we talking about? Let's start in the near term, and then I'll ask you for maybe a hopeful or grim three to five year projection. Where are we in the near term in access to the best varieties? And I guess since we've been talking about bentgrass, let's start there. Okay. I'll just start right off. Every species of grass that we produce was damaged this year and had yield reductions of some level, some of them catastrophic yield reductions, and pricing on everything is going up. Bent grasses were probably hurt less than some of the other species, primarily because they are irrigated. And part of it we were dealing with was um, drought conditions, and they're always irrigated based on their maturity. However, heat hit us at the totally wrong time of year. It was during pollination. When growers brought in the crop, they would find in their dirt weights were 20% lower than what they anticipated. And as they're cleaning, they do have a reduced yield this year. It is not as bad as some of the other species have been hit by the drought and the heat. But all you have to do is talk to whoever's supplying your seed right now. Our premium Kentucky bluegrasses are running about three times more expensive than they were last year for us, partially because the common Kentucky bluegrass crop, which is the cheap end of the market, totally failed, and a lot of other ones had severe issues. Ryegrass yields are down. Tall fescue yields are down. Boreal creeping red fescue, we're getting 30% of anticipated crop in. So it's going to be an interesting year. Let's just say this. Okay, so so let me transition then and make sure I preface this correctly. Growing grass seeds, not the easiest kind of farming there is. <laughs> Number one, it hasn't been made easier, I would say, since they stopped letting them burn things. Maybe they were never making a lot of money, but maybe it wasn't so bad growing things. But over the last 15 to 20 years, all the things that have happened to the business end of this 
industry, the seed business, as well as, you know, the consolidation and all those things. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to grow from a climate perspective. There are options for these farmers that are a little bit easier and maybe historically as lucrative. Does this make you grim on the future of really good grass seed or is it actually going to create opportunity for people who really want to put the effort into growing good seed and making money on it? And we're just going to have to get used to paying more for seed. I think in the long term, we're going to have to get used to paying more for good seed. You know, we have expanded where we grow. We grow in the Willamette Valley. We grow on the other side of the mountains. We grow in the Columbia Basin. We grow a lot in Minnesota and in Canada and Manitoba. We also, our company grows, we grow in Europe, we grow in New Zealand. You know, part of our problem with that right now and with all of them is transportation has also become extremely expensive. You know, containers are pricing is up significantly. So people are going to have to get used to it, I think, in the short term. I mean, well, some of our farmers, I drive down the road and there's hazelnuts where there was always grass seed fields before in the Willamette Valley. And so to keep good growers in the business, we're all going to have to get used to it. Hmm. Some of the tall fescue fields that they had problems with this year, they've plowed them and they're planting wheat because the wheat prices are up and they can get a guaranteed payment for it. So it's not a short term. Yes, we think prices will go down next year, we hope. But we haven't had rain yet. We're still waiting. So um, <laughs> yeah. hopefully it occurs soon. Well, Leah, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I have many other topics that I would like to explore with you at some point, if you wouldn't mind coming back, because I, I think there are other aspects to this business that there is going to be a permanent change that we need to have a better understanding of how this works. And I think uh, you articulating the inner workings of how a breeder and a team uh, develop varieties that meet the needs of the customer. It's a good little behind-the-scenes look at what you're doing, Lee. I really appreciate you taking the time to share it with me. Well, thank you for having me. I'd love to talk again. Hopefully this helps people understand what's going on right now. They're going to have sticker shock. We can't do anything about it at this point. All right, Leah. Thanks a lot. I can't help but think innovative solutions are what this industry is all about. And in my mind, one of the key innovations of the last decade is the Dryject Sand Injection Service. Dryject services offer unique soil management tactics not available in a single machine. Science has demonstrated the benefit of water injection cultivation, and sand channel injection offers a unique opportunity to break through any restricting layers in your soil profile. This keeps the water flowing through and plenty of air in the root zone. Dryject is a flexible and affordable service used by many of the great golf courses in the U.S. I have personally seen the value of this practice, and now with the ability to inject non-dried sand at several depths, it offers even more advantages. Contact your local Dryject service representative or visit dryject.com. My name is Emily Braithwaite. I'm a faculty research assistant for Alec Kovaleski at the Oregon State University Turfgrass Program. Uh, and I do a lot of our contract research trials. And I'm also working on our new diagnostic lab that we opened this year for the Pacific Northwest. 
How bad has the heat and dry been? Earlier in the episode, I was talking to Leah Brillman, who was talking about the weather up there and how it impacted the uh, potential seed harvest, particularly by coming at a time when pollination occurred. Now, that's unique to seed production. How's it been for turfgrass managers who typically grow a heck of a lot of annual bluegrass and ryegrass that last time I checked, Emily, don't like either of those conditions, uh, that hot or that dry? That is true. It's been a pretty challenging summer for superintendents out here. You know, we had that dry spring, which has affected the grass seed harvest, but also superintendents. And then we hit that heat dome in about June. Uh, So we're coming out of a dry period anyway. And the issue was that our humidity levels, which historically are low in the summertime, you know, we get those cool Mediterranean nights. We were seeing heats of 117 and we weren't cooling off at night. We were still in the high 70s at night with humidity. So that lended itself nicely to a lot of new diseases for folks out here. Uh, which was a perfect year to start the diagnostic lab. I know. Talk about good timing. <laughs> I'm sure if you've listened to us in the past, we've had a lot of diagnosticians on who take great joy when the rest of us are struggling because of the samples that are coming in. Can you look at your submissions this year and see the primary problems that these guys were facing and what were they? Yes. Yeah, so we had quite a few different diseases than we see in the summertime normally. So a lot of times for our research trials, we have to work hard to get those summer diseases. But because of those high humidities, like I was saying, we saw a lot of dollar spot early in June. We got a lot of fairy ring issues on greens this year. Um, and then some of our typical ones, our anthracnose was really high pressure this year and weightier patch and yellow patch. But we actually got the first report of gray leaf spot in Oregon, which I'm working on right now with the disease lab. Oh, this is very exciting. And so thank you for bringing up anthracnose because I know Mm -hmm. you've got a pretty extensive project going on. And I want to get right to something that I learned over the last year that you guys have seemingly been able to identify, and that is the role that wedding agents seem to be playing in helping with anthracnose. Can you talk a little bit about how that work is progressing on anthracnose in general and maybe specifically for wedding agents? Yeah, so we did some trials last year, and we're repeating some again this year. And what we've been looking at was we've been studying wedding agents for a while, and we've had a hard time finding some differences between them. But what we've noticed across the board is that we're seeing suppression of anthracnose with those wedding agents. And it's not to perfect levels like fungicides, but we are seeing uh, reductions compared to non-treated. And that's usually associated with those uh, lower rates applied frequently in the summertime. And so you came from Anthracnose Central when you graduated from Rutgers in 2016. How does this seem to make sense for you looking back at, you know, what we know the Rutgers guys have generated over the years and particularly the role that drought stress plays in potential or moisture stress plays in exacerbating the anthracnose? How would you speak to this? Do you think it's really the wetting agents potentially helping with alleviating some moisture stress? Well, from from all the things I've learned about anthracnose, kind of going through the Rutgers program, your, your best defense is a healthy plant. So kind of going into those summer stresses with adequate fertility and just maintaining that health of the plant goes a long way to reducing a lot of that disease. So it could be that, you know, it's managing that water level a little bit better and helping that plant stay healthier and just kind of holding off some of that initial onset of disease. How did the guys in the Pacific Northwest uh, adapt to these uh, dramatic changes Emily, that you talked about just a minute ago, because I don't want to go too far down the anthracnose hole because I think everybody wants to come to the field day 
pretty soon. So talk to me a little bit about the adaptations you've seen the superintendents making. Is it really just they're spraying fungicides more or are they thinking more about what's setting them up for some of these problems? What kind of adaptations have the guys made to this unprecedented condition? Well, I think a lot of that goes back to some of, you know, Clint's worked very hard on looking at alternatives to some of those traditional things. And and we've had some Rutgers people come out to Oregon State and pushed a lot more of the, the BMPs for anthracnose. So people are becoming more aware of how much influence some of these cultural practices can have on disease. And typically where we have low pressure um, in the Northwest for anthracnose. So I think it's kind of reminded people of the importance of maintaining good fertility, top dressing practices, which is a big thing out here, and just the overall plant health. So people are picking up on it more. I I think the thing that's shocking to me is that it happened quickly and so dramatically that these temperature swings, these heat domes occurred. And I'm wondering, as a plant scientist, when you looked around even at your research plots that, you know, didn't have disease, has there been any shift or collapse of some annual bluegrass where maybe in the rough areas, maybe it behaved a lot more like an annual this year because of these intense summer conditions in maybe fairways and things off the putting surfaces? Yeah, we've seen a tremendous amount of stress, particularly at our research farm with the anthracnose um, and just in general from the heat we've had. And it's actually been a really interesting summer to watch the bent grass kind of take over the farm. It's really thrived in this kind of high heat, a different environment. Um, so we're seeing a lot more encroachment on our, our putting greens. Um, I think it's been a good year to grow bent grass out here. It's interesting too, right? Because you know, you got to believe that the normal annual bluegrass weather will return this fall. And you wonder, mm-hmm. is it time to start thinking about bentgrass up in that climate? I mean, that's something people uh, often think about, but then, you know, we get back into our winters when it's just perfect climate for, for annual bluegrass to come back again. So I think it's, we're seeing a lot more extremes this year, but I think the bluegrass still does really well in the wintertime here. And so I'd like to turn the conversation to a paper I just saw you were on that got published in the International Journal that now is, of course, delayed another year. Uh, And that is irrigation strategies, looking at different irrigation programs and how it impacted uh, annual bluegrass uh, once a week versus ET replacement versus more frequently. Thinking about that work that you were a part of or at least observed, how would you have told guys to water this year to keep their annual bluegrass alive? That's a tough one. Um, So we found with that project that the more frequently that you were applying irrigation, uh, it tended to favor the annual bluegrass. So that, that was conducted on um, sort of lawn height turf. But I, I would say that might speak nicely to the superintendents as well of sort of that, that light frequent, just trying to keep the plant going throughout the day. Syringing has been a huge part of, of our summer program, just trying to keep things going with these extreme heats. One last thing. I know it's in submission, so you can tell me that you you don't have anything for me on this, but I was really interested to see the paper that you submitted on weed populations, uh, how they've responded to reduced herbicide use. This is a topic near and dear to my heart, Emily. What can you share with me or us uh, about what you've learned in looking at populations as you've used less herbicides? Yeah, so this is kind of a project near and dear to my heart, and um, it's actually being continued with this carbon sequestration we're working on. Mm -hmm. But we've been maintaining these plots at the farm for about four and a half years now with just cultural inputs, so mowing, fertilization, and irrigation. And we're really finding that you get a tremendous amount of suppression of weeds by maintaining two to four pounds of N per thousand square feet per year versus not applying fertilizers at all. 
So we're, we're able to manage these plots and get good turf quality with just these cultural management inputs. Is that considered uh, an adequate amount of N, two to four pounds? Or, I mean, are there more weeds at two versus four? Yeah, so you're getting a few more with two. The, the more N you're putting in, the fewer weeds you're getting. But you get a dramatic reduction by just applying two pounds per thousand square feet per year. And this was really, it stemmed from trying to target our school IPM populations where they have very limited inputs that they can apply to their, their ground. So some of them don't fertilize at all or they put down small amounts. So we're just trying to target how much can they get away with putting down at least to see some reduction. Okay, two more questions and I'll get you out of here. One is, give me some details on this diagnostic lab. I think in the past it was more passive that people could send samples and maybe folks would look at them. But now you have a direct link. Is it something I can find easily on the website? Yeah, so our diagnostic lab, you can find it through beaverturf.oregonstate.edu. And then we have a page right on there, or you can Google the OSU Turf Diagnostic Lab. And so we set it up as a more formal place that we can receive samples from the lower 48 states. We're sticking to sort of the West Coast at the moment as we start to grow. But we noticed that there was kind of a missing link for the extension operation out here. So we weren't really in key with what was going on with some of our superintendents. And this has really given us an insight to some of the problems day to day. I couldn't agree more. In fact, if any, you know, people listen to this program at all, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely passionate about talking to diagnosticians. It's the easiest way to keep track of what's going on. So big kudos to you guys uh, for getting that going and continue to serve all the turfgrass managers up in that climate. And in addition to the diagnostic lab, you've got a field day coming up. When is it? Yeah, our field day is Thursday. Our plot tours start at 9 a.m. Pacific Coast time. I think we're going to post some videos after the fact through our Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, but we're looking forward to having people in person again. And so they'll be able to see a fair amount of the plot work that we talked about with anthracnose and, and maybe the weed plots and probably even some cultivation and other things you're working on with people. Yeah, and we're excited we're going to be showcasing our carbon sequestration grant as well. So that should be uh, pretty interesting. Well, you mentioned it twice. Let me hear it. What What is this carbon sequestration grant? Yeah, so we're basically trying to build a carbon map for turf grass. This was a grant secured with the USDA soil scientists in town. Um, and we're trying to quantify the annual uptake of CO2 through plant growth and the annual loss of respiration. So kind of looking to build this larger scale map of, of what turf is actually doing in a system sense, uh, looking at soil carbon and the plant as well. Excellent work, Emily. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you doing it and best of luck with Field Day. Thank you so much, Frank. Enhancing stress tolerance is essential for every golf course superintendent. Civitas Turf Defense from IntelliGrow combines two compounds with demonstrated ability to activate plant defenses, assist with the control of insects and diseases, as well as increasing stress tolerance. Many of you know I'm not one to feign praise on a product without data. Civitas Turf Defense has performed successfully in hundreds of research trials. Sounds too good to be true, and yet the science and experience in the field is solid in support of the programmatic use of Civitas an OMRI-listed product that allows for reduction in pesticide, nutrient, and water use. Learn more about Civitas Turf Defense, available from a variety of distributors throughout the U.S. and Canada in pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations, or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com. 
Paul, welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Paul, for those of you who don't know, is our mindful superintendent at TurfNet.com and has been actively writing this summer about what I can only describe as what we've all been struggling with. Short-staffed, pressing ourselves even more. I know you took it up pretty intensely in this last blog post about essentialism. But, you know, previously in the summer, you talked about patterns. You talked about finding space. You talked about being quiet. And then it almost seemed like this essentialism, Paul, tied it all together. First off, for everybody, how are you doing and how is life in Prince Edward Island these days? Well, I'd say life in Prince Edward Island is we're pretty lucky here for the most part. We're trying to get back to a bit of normalcy, I think, with a lot of things. Tourism kind of opened up again, but like everywhere else right about now, there's there's a lot of confusion and there's there's a lot of apprehension and there's people trying to travel and trying to do things, but nothing feels quite like it did. So overall, golf, again, here, like everywhere else as well, is booming. doesn't really matter what kind of a course you're at. Right now, people want to be outside. They want to be having fun. They want to be doing things as safely as they possibly can. And one of the things they love to do is golf. So, yeah luckily for us. Right. I mean, obviously, on one hand, we're grateful for it. But on the other hand, I think like every other part of this pandemic, the stress is exposing some of the weaknesses in our even our best laid wellness plans, right? Because of the relentless persistence, I think, of, you know, last year it was uncertainty and fear maybe of the virus and, and certainly golf was a respite. And I don't know how it's being experienced in Canada, but for sure now, Almost every operation I speak to is 20 to 40% down in staff. And, you know, I'm talking usually to the golf course superintendent or to the assistant. And they're out there doing their things that they didn't normally do. Uh, have you been in that particular situation uh, this year with being short-staffed and having to step up and do things that you didn't always normally do? Personally, not so much. Um, we, we're always been kind of lucky, and um, from the standpoint of we, we live in a, a very active community with a lot of young people and a lot of people looking to work. But I have spoken with a lot of superintendents in the area and some salespeople, and a lot of people are running into that trouble. And we're seeing it here on PEI as well, being predominantly a tourist-based economy in the summertime, and, and there was so many unanswered questions when the season started that a lot of people got caught flat-footed when it got busy. And they really didn't anticipate the amount of volume and the amount of traffic we were going to see. And they never hired enough people. And and now they're panicking because we're looking at probably one of the busiest falls we've seen in a really long time. And they either didn't hire enough people to begin with or the students are going back to school and they're already moving on anyway because the season for them is ending. And that's a good point because normally most of the kids are going back to school, especially if you rely on any college help. They're heading off, so everybody's heading into the fall, possibly a little short-staffed. And I guess I'm just using this as an analogy for what we oftentimes think about, and that's you know staring down something that we know is going to be really hard or is really hard and... I know I don't always revert to my best behavior 
<laughs> when I'm pressed a bit. This has happened to me uh, this season where I've been short of help and I've been spraying my plots. And I'll admit candidly, I can't really spray a straight line. So I'm going to get a GPS sprayer as quick as I can. (laughs) I can't mow a straight line either. And I figured out why I decided to be a superintendent because no one was going to let me keep cutting grass with all the lasers I see everybody bragging about. So I've had to confront uh, not just having to do the work, but also being bad at it when you've been doing it for a really long time. And I can tell you that it's stressful. It's I would tell you when I made a tank of an ammonium sulfate spray that I probably put a little too much melted ammonium sulfate in it and I couldn't get it to come out. Uh, it was a bit of a traumatic experience. Uh, and <laughs> Finding my best self uh, in those moments is not so easy. Where do you start? I think you start by offering compassion, really. And, and I think I've had a lot of conversations lately, just not even with golf course superintendents, but with food and beverage people, with other tourist operators. And, and really, you just got to go easy on yourself. I mean, so much of what we're dealing with still has this underlying kind of heavy layer of anxiety over the pandemic still and in the anxiety over the uncertainty you spoke to earlier and and that stuff it's still there and and it doesn't really go away and and then you just add the normal ups and downs and then you add just being short staffed you add having to be out of your comfort zone that stuff it does take a toll over time and like you said even your best laid plans of wellness tend to fly out the window when you have no choice but be the one raking bunkers, trimming, mowing greens, and changing tins and spraying at the same time. It's just really, really difficult. And it's one of those scenarios, again, like you mentioned, that it does expose deficiencies that were kind of present anyway. And being compassionate with yourself and then being kind of honest and compassionate with all of our industry at this point and then being able to step back and, and really look at it and go, okay, well, these are some things we've learned. These are some things we need to do differently. Let's work together and, and do the best we can. What comes to mind when we have this conversation are two big things you mentioned in your essentialism blog post. And that was one, uh, learning and unlearning. You know, we've learned how to be. A lot of us are successful because of our ability to grind on it and not necessarily think of ourselves and our well-being first and foremost. And then the second part is trust. Uh, I think many of us are like, especially if you're getting a lot of people off the street that could just as easily work at Chick-fil-A or now working at your golf course, obviously there's going to be trust, uh, you, you know, getting over that trust. Can they do it? giving them a task and then remembering not to assume they know anything when you send them out to do that task. Those are the two big ones for me. What do you think? I agree. I mean, this whole pandemic has really been about being able to be honest and reflective enough about what you've learned and being able to look at some of the patterns you've had in the past of whether it's your work, whether it's your home life, and and really honestly saying, do they work? And, and are they holding up to the scrutiny and the pressure of what's happening around the world right now? And as you mentioned, if some of your well-worn patterns involve not being able to delegate, involve not being able to trust people, then you really got to look in the mirror and ask yourself, well, how can I do this differently? How can I do this better? And how can I really use this opportunity and change things for the better moving forward? Because really, so much, whether it's through the golf, whether it's through tourism, whether it's through our healthcare system, 
if we're not looking holistically at what happened over the last year and a half and really learning from it, well, then we're in trouble because there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And I wonder, as I can tell you, I got frazzled several times this summer. I can tell you that what I did was I sat and imagined, okay, imagine if I didn't do that and what would happen to that grass? How would this turn out? And I think, well, you know, I can't do this study. I can't do that study. Or, ooh, that soccer field's not going to look good for a couple of weeks as well. I think one of the things we struggle with is confronting failure. Maybe we project failure when we feel like we're not performing the way we want. How have you thought about that? Because obviously, you know, you've had those situations uh, in your career, and I'm sure now you're chatting with people that are confronting that. And I think it's one of the things that really sets a trigger for a lot of us to reach out for help is some form of failure or perceived failure. Sure, it does. And I, I mean, failure really, what it comes down to is you're simply making mistakes. And if you don't have a healthy relationship with making a mistake, then this really does pile on a lot to how you look at yourself and how you feel about yourself. And I mean, there's been lots of successes throughout this entire pandemic, holistically around the world, but there's been a great many failures as well. And unfortunately, by times, those failures have been catastrophic. Really, when it comes back to what we do, I mean, if, if really it means a soccer field isn't as good as it should be or whether a bunker didn't turn out right or a hole isn't quite presented as, as nicely as we see it in our mind, really, at the end of the day, does it really matter that much? Or can we just kind of recalibrate and do the best we can for today and then we'll try again tomorrow and, and kind of move on? So There certainly are conditions where, you know, how bad is it going to get? A lot mm-hmm. of guys sign on to a approach in this business that's really driven and has expectations. I mean, you know, Rich McIntosh held the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines. You know, in many ways, he didn't have time to think about, you know, how am I taking care of myself? And and I know Rich did really well, and, and I've gotten a chance to spend some time with him. I'm only using him here as an example. But I wonder, too, Paul, how you talk to especially young people that get themselves into the industry and are starting to experience the grind at a really high level and are a bit lost because maybe they're conflicted now. This isn't what they thought they were signing on for. Yeah, and and I don't think they're alone in the sense that a lot of people over the last year and a half, whether it's in our industry or any industry, have kind of looked at their lives and started to reevaluate things a little and, and really looked at things and recalibrated what's important to them. I think as an industry, we need to be able to look in the mirror as well and say, okay, how much of this is worth it? And is it worth it in the long run for us to set our industry up from a standpoint of this relentless grind and, and then not being able to find people who want to do it? We can look at people and we can complain about work ethic and we can complain about this, that, and the other thing. But really, if we can't look at these people with some monicum of flexibility and and kind of awareness and go, well, maybe they're not as wrong as we think they are. And, And maybe there's lessons to be learned. And maybe some of the balance that some of the younger people are seeking right now, that's the same balance we need as superintendents and, and as older people and older generations. And, and, and what can we learn from that side of things to make the whole industry more sustainable moving forward? 
One of the things you write about in this blog at the very end, you wrote, this is exactly the shakeup the turf industry needs. And I'm wondering, is that what you mean? That we have to be a little bit more understanding about the quality of our lives away from the golf course? These things become very contrary to what I think a lot of people have decided to be a success or, you know, a defined success as. I I hear you talking about a softer side of it and I'd like to give you the chance to wrap it up and talk to me about that softer side of this whole thing. Yeah, I, I really do believe that it is exactly what I was referring to. And and it really does come back to perspective and, and really taking the opportunity when life presents you with the opportunity we've all had over the last year and a half to really look at everything critically and look at everything honestly and ask, is this correct? Is the way we're approaching this the way it needs to be? Or is there a different, more sustainable, more realistic expectations? Like just just a different way of doing things that ends up, as I mentioned, in the long run, making our jobs more sustainable and attracting people to this industry more sustainable and and making it so we can have people going to college, studying for turf degrees, entering this business, and really looking at it as a viable alternative and not something that's going to grind them to dust by the time they're 30 years old. It's always great chatting with you, Paul, and it goes by entirely too quickly for these little snippets. I hope you'll come back and chat with me again uh, in the near future. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Frank. I always enjoy it. Thank you, Paul. Big thanks to Dr. Leah Broman, Emily Braithwaite, and Paul McCormick. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. And Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.